I noticed that some of my colleagues showed discomfort when I brought up concepts um, and topics such as stigma and discrimination, diversity and equity and inclusion, or systematic oppression. And all of this came from my lens as a consumer. Hi, this is Ike Evans of the Hogg Foundation for Mental Health, and you're listening to Into the Fold, Issues in Mental Health. The Hogg Foundation is a strategic grant maker based at the University of Texas at Austin. To learn more, visit us at hogg.utexas.edu. In much of its work, and consistent with its core value of diversity, equity, and inclusion, the Hogg Foundation prioritizes historically excluded groups. You might think of historically excluded groups as those excluded by virtue of race, ethnicity, gender, or sexual orientation. But another group has often been at the forefront of our grant making, mental health consumers. These are individuals with lived experience of mental health conditions who are at various stages on their road to recovery and well-being. Historically, the mental health agenda has been driven by providers, clinicians, and academics. Consumers have often received second-class treatment and little consideration as anything but recipients of services. That started to change with the rise of the consumer movement in the 1970s and 1980s. Though there is still progress to be made, the notion that consumers can and should be a part of mental health systems change is no longer a revolutionary idea. The Hawk Foundation has said a lot about the power of consumer voice in recent years, and our podcast reflects that. Here's a clip from an episode in 2018, our interview with Latasha Taylor of Grassroots Leadership of Texas on her experiences as both a woman of color and a mental health consumer. I think being an organizer as someone who, I'm an activist, and a lot of the issues that those with mental health issues are facing are civil rights as well. Um, having civil rights violated sometimes I think has more um, of a negative effect on an individual's wellness than lack of treatment. And our second episode back in 2014 featured a person with lived experience, Willie Williams, at the time co-coordinator of the Austin Area African American Behavioral Health Network, shared with us his perspective on being out as a person in recovery. Uh, if I mention it, I mention it casually, but only if it's going to help move someone to something, if it's going to help establish a relationship. If I already have a relationship, adding on that I'm a consumer doesn't take the relationship any further. Um, and it is not my personal kind of goal to be the, the champion for uh, those in recovery. I am a champion for mental and physical wellness. I am a champion for helping our professional have that change in paradigm that of recovery-oriented systems. So I, I'm, I'm a very strong voice for that. A little over a decade ago, the Hogg Foundation became a part of this movement when it hired its first two consumer and family liaisons, who I am very happy to say are still with us today. 
Stephanie Bryan and Tammy Hines were hired two months apart in late 2008 and early 2009. In addition to being program officers, they proudly wear the mantle of those who have personally experienced mental health recovery and infuse what they've learned into their work. This episode is partly a celebration of their time with us, but it's also a chance to revisit the topics of consumers and recovery and discuss how these continue to be central to our approach as a funder. And we couldn't have chosen a better time for this episode. March also happens to be Women's History Month. Tammy and Stephanie, thanks for joining us, and congratulations on 10 years at the Hawk Foundation. Thanks for having us, Ike. In our space, people often use the term lived experience. I said a bit about what this means in my intro, but could you tell us what it means in your own words and why it matters that we use this language? Um, it really is an interesting question, and I just want to let you know that I really, I often introduce myself as an individual with lived experience of recovery. And I think it's important because it's a way of kind of shifting the mental model or breaking down stereotypes, eliminating the prejudice, the fear, and the shame that sometimes surrounds mental health conditions. If I were to go in and say, I'm an individual um, that has experienced a mental health condition, people just start going, wow, okay, how, how, who invited her? Um, I think it's a strength-based way of reframing and modeling non-stigmatizing ways of discussing the experiences of individuals like myself. Using the term an individual with lived experience of recovery provides me with the opportunity to number one, disclose that I speak from both a professional and personal perspective. Number two, it helps to raise awareness that recovery is possible. And number three, I do believe that it inspires hope and encourages others who have similar lived experiences to seek and receive the recovery supports that they deserve. I think that using the term lived experience, particularly around mental health issues, um, really brings an honor to the experiences, the life experiences that we've all had. And I think that for so long, people like us were stigmatized and it was seen as only a negative. And therefore we were um, consumers of the mental health system. We were survivors of the mental health system. We were patients of a hospital. It's always being of something or some other entity. This allows us to kind of own our own selves again. We get to say this is our experience and our experience contributes to the totality of who we are. And part of what creates who I am is my lived experience of mental health, my lived experience of recovery, my lived experience of having mental health issues and bringing all that into one space. And I, I completely agree with Stephanie. I think the recovery word is, is so important in terms of really highlighting the hopeful aspect of being able to live through some of these experiences that we've had. And by saying I'm a person with lived experience of mental health recovery, then I'm saying I've gone through the mental health experiences, I've recovered, I've worked on my recovery, and there's hope for you too. 
Can you briefly share how the consumer movement first emerged and how did it dovetail with the uh, the work that the foundation was doing to the point where it was determined that we needed uh, consumer and family liaisons on our staff? So I think that the, the consumer movement actually started back in the 60s and 70s alongside the civil rights movements and the civil rights movement. And it was a group of people who we would call activists today, people who had mental health conditions, mental health issues. Most of the people at that time had been hospitalized at some point in their lives and had take, had their, their rights taken away from them. They were put in a hospital against their will. And they were very active in trying to look at um, the rights infringements that were happening as people were being institutionalized. As that started to occur, the language started to come about and started to shift. And so it, originally, the, the activists of that time were really very focused on being survivors of a certain type of system. They were survivors of psychiatry. They were survivors of the mental health system. And they were very focused on separating themselves from this medical model, this disease model. Over time, as services and supports evolved, um, they're still not perfect today, but we do have um, a wealth of resources that are available to people. And over time, people started to not feel as negatively about associating themselves with the services. And so the, the language changed and became... Um, patients of hospitals, patients of doctors, which, you know, we hear that across the board today. It doesn't matter if you're talking about mental health or physical health. We, if, we're, if we have a doctor, then we're a patient of the doctor. Um, so people got to be a little bit more comfortable with that language. As more and more self-determination came into the language, um, the term consumer came about because it was, it was really giving choice to um, people who had not had a lot of choice in the services and supports that they had been exposed to, had been given. And so there was a real ownership that came from calling themselves consumers. And so there's actually been a lot of um, controversy over many years about the language and what language should be used to describe us. And I think what many of us have landed on um, is whatever people are comfortable with is really the language that should be used. I think that we've kind of reconciled that because we've worked really hard to get to a place of recovery, that we want to highlight the recovery aspect of our experience. But there may be people that are not in that space yet, and therefore they want to highlight the fact that they have a diagnosis. Many people actually feel a freedom that comes from finding out that there's a diagnosis, and so they're very comfortable with, I'm a person with X diagnosis. Um, you know, as far as, as the consumer movement, it, it, to me, there is, and I think Judy Chamberlain, um, one of the early organizers of the consumer movement, she explained it and, and compared our movement, the consumer movement, with other civil rights movements. Um, among the major organizing principles of these other civil rights movements, and that's what I think, I think that's what they are, are self-definition and self-determination. Um, 
African Americans felt that white people could not understand their experiences. Women felt similarly about men. Gay and lesbians felt similarly about heterosexuals. I mean, these are movements. And as these groups evolved, they moved from defining themselves to setting their own priorities. They didn't have to continue to define who they were. They were going to move things forward by setting their own priorities. To consumers who began to organize, these principles really seemed equally valid because I do believe, as Judy said, it, it's our own perspective. Our own perspective about mental illness, um, we were entirely opposed to those of the general public because they didn't have the same experience that we did. Um, I, too, have been told uh, that the culture of the organization came about as the organization matured, that there was a point when um, I was told that somebody sat around a table and said, wow, how dare we continue to make plans and, and fund organizations to do this work without having individuals at the table helping us to move this forward. Individuals with lived experience of recovery who could sit at the table and say, that's not really, we wanna, you, don't wanna, you wanna think about it differently. So I, I'm, and I'm glad that they had that wherewithal. Or nothing about us without us. Ah, there you go, Ike, that's it. Exactly. When we talk about the, um, the term consumer, um, Gail Bluebird, I believe, said it best. And she did say that history connects us with our past and with those who have gone before us and those who have earned remembrance. We may not be aware of our rich history, and we belong to that history because it was people before us who started this, and I think it's really important. Um, many individuals, I think Tammy said earlier, they re really don't like the word or the term consumer, but it is part of our history, and it is, um, as I said earlier, the golden thread that binds us together. There is on occasion chatter about the term consumer, uh, about whether it's outlived its usefulness or if it ever really made sense as an effective descriptor in the first place. Uh, how do you two feel about it? I think I think it made sense. I think when you when you look at the evolution of the language, I think it's important to see where we've been um, and to recognize the different steps that it took along the way to get to each of those places. So I think being a consumer coming from patient um, perspective, I think getting to a point where you were a consumer was a really big step, actually. And I think having other people use the term consumer, not just those of us that are consumers, but having doctors and your providers use the term consumer was also very empowering. So, you know, it, to go from being a patient who's told exactly what needs to be done to maintain your I'm not going to say wellness because I think that was a little bit um, aspirational at the time, but to be told all the things that needed to happen to maintain either a decrease in your symptoms or to maintain whatever lifestyle you'd been able to get to. So all of those things, we never had this idea that we could live our best lives. It was always this idea that maintenance was our goal. And so when it became 
a focus on, wait a minute, this is really about you living your best life, whatever that means to you, that's around the same time period that language was evolving and the self-determination became part of people's own decision and taking responsibility for their own wellness. And so I think that, I think to not acknowledge that language change is, is a missing piece. I do think that over time we've gotten to where um, consumer doesn't feel quite as personal as we as we would like. And so I think where we've landed most recently is around using our lived experience to inform, um, using our lived experience to be part of who we are. And, uh, you know, the, the People First Language movement, I think, was part of that. Um, after being, after going through the whole consumer language piece, I think then we started talking about we're people before we are a diagnosis. And so we're a person with depression or a person with bipolar um, versus being a depressive, a bipolar, things like that. And so I think as that language changed as well, the the illness aspect started to kind of separate um, from the sole identity of the individual and became just a component of who somebody might be. Okay. So how have your roles and even the culture of the Hogg Foundation evolved since you first began here? Like, uh, it, as you stated earlier, it, it has. It's been over 10 years. And I recall that um, when first hired, uh, I was given the title of Consumer and Family Liaison. That was my tile, but I really felt that my role as an individual with lived experience of recovery and the responsibilities that were set forth in my job description um, and given the opportunity to be a steward of this foundation would go far beyond the parameters of that title of consumer and family liaison. And it really has. It, it's been... it's been a heck of a ride. Um, when I first began at the foundation, it was challenging. It was, it was challenging to have discussions around sensitive topics. It was tough having discussions about a lot of things. Um, having a self-identified consumer on staff was definitely a new way of doing business for the foundation. And discussions uh, related to our work I noticed that some of my colleagues showed discomfort when I brought up concepts um, and topics such as stigma and discrimination, diversity and equity and inclusion or systematic oppression. And all of this came from my lens as a consumer. It wasn't my lens as, it wasn't my um, view as a philanthropist as a clinician, as anybody that had ever worked in a foundation and had that, that historical, I'll call it baggage. <laughs> How about that? That, you know, I, I don't think that, that those conversations um, were, were prominent at the time that I was hired. Um, I will say that I think today the foundation is sizzling absolutely sizzling with sensitive topics. I think there are still hard conversations to have, but we are having discussions about racial biases, 
about gender discrimination, political issues. We even talk about our own perceived power and privilege as members of the philanthropic sector. We are having discussions about power and privilege within our own organization. And we will continue to have courageous conversations, I think, to help us learn our way to solutions together. I would like to share um, what I think was the first disruptive innovation <laughs> that Stephanie and I brought to the foundation. Um, as she mentioned, we were both hired as consumer and family liaisons. And we recognized, I would say in the first six months or so, that our roles weren't any different from the other program officers on staff. And yet our title was different. And we had some really long, deep discussions about that and really tried to figure out how we felt about it. Um, we recognized the value in drawing attention to our experience and being consumers and family members in this, you know, in this big movement. And yet we also saw the value in recognizing that we were doing the same job as other people. And how did we reconcile those two things? And I think, Stephanie, I think it was about six months. Does that sound about mm -hmm. right? Yeah. When we decided to go and talk to Dr. Martinez and basically just presented to him this idea that we really felt like we had two titles. And he listened. He immediately heard us and he agreed and we had new business cards printed with both of our titles and we've kept both titles throughout for for the last decade i feel like that was one of the first times that we really kind of stepped into the strength of the role and so it was a really interesting um, transition professionally as well to try to bring that into conversation to try to figure out where it fit um, I remember Stephanie and I having just conversation after conversation around policies and procedures and things that could be potentially stigmatizing. And we really weren't sure how far to push it. And so it was it was a constant um, balancing act to figure out how to fit in, but also how to disrupt the milieu in, in a way that would move us or advance us forward. And, and I feel really good about where we've, where we've come in the last 10 years. I think that we can both look back and see that we did have an impact and that our language has made it into many of the things that the foundation has done. Prior to the foundation's latest strategic shift, our tagline was advancing recovery and wellness in Texas. Uh, this tied us more explicitly to the consumer movement, where recovery is a core concept. Now our mission is to transform how communities promote mental health in everyday life. How are we better able to do that after, after having gone through our consumer moment first? I think we recognize the holistic nature of what we're talking about. I think we're not compartmentalizing illness as being something separate from us. I think we we all have our life experiences and they all are part of what makes up who we are. And I think we recognize when we go into communities that people and communities are the whole of all the different pieces that, that are their experiences. And so I think we have a better understanding 
of what that means as we go into a community and we talk about um, creating environments or helping communities figure out what it takes to have an environment that's conducive to wellness. You know, I, I, I stated earlier that I thought or believe that the major organizing practices of the consumer movement are self-definition, self-determination. And they do go hand in hand with recovery. But community participation and being involved and being a part of, it, it's, just, it's just an opportunity to become a part of something bigger than yourself. And that is your community in which you live. And I think that just going through the consumer movement first and advancing recovery in Texas gave us the impetus and the opportunity to say, wow, we want to go even deeper than that. Tammy, a lot of your work has been tied to our relationship with Via Hope. From my perspective, our work together has really been a cornerstone of our intention to fund recovery-based mental health work. Can you say a little for our listeners about what Via Hope is and, and how this, their approach became such a hallmark for us? Sure. Um, you know, I got lucky enough when I started in January of 2009 to be put in charge of a relationship with what would eventually be Via Hope. Um, it started with me meeting with some people from the Department of State Health Services at the time and recognizing that the foundation had had a memorandum of understanding with the state to create this training and technical assistance center. Interestingly, I had never heard of this training and technical assistance center, but my counterpart had. And ultimately, after a, a fairly grueling um, granting process, <laughs> um, the Mental Health Association of Texas was granted money, um, was actually, I think it was set up as a contract with the state. We then came in, we were part of the conversation around that very early on, but we didn't come in as a funder until about a year later because we really wanted to see where we could make the most impact. And to be honest, as they were starting, they were flush with money. They had, they had money coming in from the transformation grant, and so money was not necessarily the issue at the time. However, there were things that came up. You know, the, the state couldn't fund everything, um, and as one of the things that came out of the development of the Training and Technical Assistance Center was this real desire to see a peer workforce develop. And part of that came from some very small groups of consumers, of which Stephanie and I were part of, coming together and saying, we need to be part of this. We need to be part of this movement that is happening across the country where peers are becoming providers and that there's a real value to the services that peers can provide to each other. Um, and so some of those conversations kind of fed into the, the Via Hope development and creation um, and over time eventually became what the, the, you know, the cornerstone of what they do, uh, which has been training uh, new peer specialists. Things have changed over the years. The roles have changed. Um, our funding has changed. The state's funding has changed. And Via Hope has done a really good job of kind of surviving the tides. And 
they're you know they're really finding a new niche for themselves as as the state has changed kind of the structure of all of this and there's actually really interesting career paths being created for peer specialists now and so it's really exciting to me to know that um, a good chunk of our money has gone into creating that in our state. Now, Steph, for many years, a lot of your grant pro- portfolio was directed toward East Texas and the broad con- community of consumers in that part of the state. Can you tell us more about that and how it's been significant to our coming of age as a foundation? Sure. I, um, I'll just begin back in the fall of 2010. The Hogg Foundation um, embarked on an initiative that focused on consumer involvement in recovery and wellness in Texas. Uh, The foundation sought to develop a leadership network, specifically in the East Texas Corridor, that would provide opportunities for professional development, networking, peer-to-peer support, and education and training on recovery, wellness, and consumer involvement to both the consumers and the mental health providers in the East Texas region. Um, they, it, it, was, it was a self-elected name by the consumers who were part of this group, um, and they identified themselves as the Texas Coalition for Mental Health Recovery, and they were really proud of, of, of being a big part of that. Um, the primary goal of the initiative was to provide peer partners, um, peer partners within the local mental health authorities in East Texas, as well as Rusk State Hospital. And the impact that they had, um, I think, was, was huge. And I, I do believe that um, where we are today with the initiatives and our focus on well-being, um, I, I think, I'd like to think, I don't know, um, that it was impactful enough to make a decision and for us to have the awareness that mental health isn't just about recovery. Mental health is about wellness and everyone in the community supporting one another and having a sense of well-being. So, Tammy, you recently said to me that part of the foundation's evolution has been getting to a place where recovery is not just possible, but the expectation. Uh, If that's the case, uh, what must all of us working in the mental health space in Texas commit to? I think the first thing that comes to mind is hope. I, you know, I think that the stark difference between a world where recovery is the expectation and a world where recovery is just an idea and something that might be available to some people is this idea of hope for all. And just this idea that we can all get to a place where, and I keep using this language, but where we're living our best lives. It's self-determined. It's what I think is my best life. It's not what you think is my best life. And I think that's a key piece because for so long, we were told what needed to happen for our lives to be considered successful. We needed to be consistent with our medication. We needed to keep our doctor's appointments. We probably couldn't handle relationships. We probably couldn't go back to school. There were these there were these expectations that were there that were very limiting. And I think over time, there's been this realization that the only person that's, that can put limits on me is me. 
And so there's there's a responsibility in that, which is very freeing. Um, and I think that recognizing that with hope comes this idea that we can make things as good as we want them to be if we're willing to work for it and willing to take responsibility for it. And I, I feel like that's the commitment that we have to make. One other thing that I'll add, somebody said to me once, and I, and I hold on to this a lot, um, often when we're in the depths of despair, and I've been there, and I know that trying to find hope when you're in that place is not something that's easy to do on your own. And yet, someone was able to hold that hope for me when I didn't have it. And now I feel this very strong, intense desire to hold that for other people when they don't have it for themselves. And I think that we as humanity, um, we as communities, that is something we can provide for each other. And if we truly believe that people have the ability to recover and that people have the ability to take responsibility for what needs to happen in their lives to live the life they want to live, then we can provide that hope and we can hold it for them while they don't have it. Well, Tam, you know, who can follow that? Um, it, I, I believe that we need to value each individual and meet them where they are. And um, as I said earlier, what I want for someone possibly is not what they want for themselves. And I can't interject my own values or my practices on other individuals. I have to meet them where they are and let them develop and uh, come to a determination of what that is for them. And that does it for this episode. Tammy and Stephanie, congratulations again for your decade of work with the Foundation. We are so grateful to you both. Thank you so much. Thank you, I. It's a pleasure. The themes of recovery and consumers have been constant currents within the Hogg Foundation's work through the years. I've included links to several of our resources on the subject, including podcasts, in the episode description. Uh, thank you so much for joining us.